When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling out to Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah came, comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split, and the tomb broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Have you ever had uh, what is now called, and I was today years old when I realised moments. Now, this is a, a phrase that's uh, it's a hashtag on Twitter. It's when you see something that you were, thought you were familiar with, but you see it through new eyes. You have this stunning realisation. Uh, things like finding out that screwdrivers are designed, some of them, so that you can use a wrench to get extra torque. Did you know that? You can fit a wrench over the handle. Mind blown. Uh, or seeing why eggplants are called eggplants. It's not because they taste like egg or you can't use them as substitutes for pancakes, as I found out once when I bit into what I thought was a pikelet and it was eggplant. But they look like eggs. I don't know if you can see that on the screen. But as they're growing, mind-blowing. Or here's a useful one that transformed my life, finding out that this little arrow in a car, whether it's your car or an unfamiliar car, it tells you which side of the car the petrol tank is on. I know, I know, mind-blowing, life-changing. Uh, sometimes things that we think are just good actually turn out to be great in these moments. And I want to ask this morning as we come to this story, a story that for many of us is quite familiar, what would a I was today years old moment look like for you on a Good Friday? Maybe you're observing Good Friday for the first time, maybe it's your 85th time, maybe it's somewhere in between. What would a moment like this look like with this story? What's what would it look like to discover something you've taken for granted or that you've missed altogether? Uh, I want to confess that I had one of these moments this week. I might be alone, I might be up here telling you about something I'm really excited about, but that you guys are all over, and that's fine. You can just bear with me. 
But if you're joining us today, we've spent the last 11 weeks uh, looking at the teaching of Jesus, the red letters in Matthew, and especially how what we call the good news, the gospel, might actually be bigger and greater than some of what we've settled for as good news. That there might be some, I was today years old moments throughout the gospel. Uh, We've seen how Jesus came to bring heaven and earth together, restoring people to God's presence. Whether that's Israel, who were exiled from God and still find themselves under foreign rule without a king when Jesus turns up, or whether it's all of humanity, because all humans were exiled from God back near the beginning of the Bible, where there's that story of the paradise garden of Eden where heaven and earth meet and where people have eternal life with God. Jesus has come to restore people to that sort of life with God, God with us. And Good Friday is part of his mission. Uh, He's been flagging that his death in Jerusalem, Good Friday is the end goal. We saw that as he set his face to Jerusalem, as he headed up saying that he was going to be condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles by the religious leaders of Israel where he'd be mocked and flogged and crucified, which we see happening in the passage that we've just read together. And you're probably here with some idea what Good Friday is about. You could give some answer to why Good Friday is part of the good news. Whether you're here as a believer or not, you've probably got some idea what Christians think Good Friday is on about. And there's actually lots of answers for how Good Friday fits into the good news. It's a coronation. Uh, Just before our reading, before what Natalie just read for us, Jesus is dressed in royal robes and crowned and called the King of the Jews. Now that's even written above his head on the cross. Jesus is King. Now this is good news because of the kingdom he brings. Because on Good Friday, we see Jesus as a suffering servant, the sort of leader we can only dream of. In this story, the the Easter story, we see a contrast between the kingdom of the servant king and the violent kingdoms of the world that would go so far as to execute God's son to protect their power and their wealth. And so Jesus gives us a good example of how to live in a messed up world. That's part of the good news. The cross is where Jesus demonstrates the Beatitudes, the values of the kingdom that he spoke about on the Sermon on the Mount embodying meekness while inheriting the earth, being persecuted for righteousness while receiving the kingdom of heaven. We see Jesus persecuted right up to the point that he's crucified, bleeding and humiliated, naked even, giving his life to free people from the clutches of sin and death and Satan to launch God's kingdom, uh, contrasted with those who put him there on the cross. Rome and Israel and even the people there gambling for his clothes. We see a contrast in Jesus showing what his kingdom looks like at this point and the modern kingdoms that surround us chasing power and glory and wealth. And as he reveals this good life, this good example, he's also revealing what God is like. Jesus on the cross is showing us the character of God. This is what faithful image-bearing people in the kingdom do. What people were made to do was reflect the nature of God in the world. It's the job of the Son of God, we saw through the gospel, to reveal what his Father is like. And so on Good Friday, Jesus is revealing that God is good. Even as those walking by hurl insults at him, 
You said you'd destroy and rebuild the temple. Look at you now. As they walk by, missing that Jesus is the meeting place between heaven and earth, the true temple where God is meeting his people and we are seeing what God is like even in this moment. These people are mocking the idea that he's the son of God. How could a crucified man be showing us what God is like? The priests even joined in. It's their job to represent God to the people. He saved others, they say. If he just come down, we believe. Let God rescue him if he's really the son of God. If he's really here to show us what God is like. These priests are meant to show the world what God is like. And instead, they are mocking the son of God as he's there naked and humiliated on the cross. They're joining the violence while at the same time Jesus is showing God's life-giving, self-giving love for others. Jesus isn't just on the cross to take God's anger for sin on his shoulders. It's not just an act of being distant from his Father. It is an act of God as he dies there for us. The triune God, it's an act that reveals the character of God to the world as the Father, Son and Spirit act in love to create a people who live in a way that reflects their love to the world. And so when we see the Son on the cross acting in life-giving love, laying down his life for his friends, we see the character of the Father on display. See, sometimes we make the cross all about Jesus taking on his Father's anger. That's our good news about him being separated from God on our behalf, taking the punishment for sin for us. But even in this moment of separation, Jesus is actually showing us what God is like because this is an act of love from within the Trinity, from son to father and a shared act of love for us. And that's good news. What's also good news is that idea of the forgiveness of sins, of Jesus paying the price, paying our debt, forgiving us. The cross is where Jesus takes our sin and the punishment for it upon his shoulders like a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, so that God's judgment passes over us. It's where his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, as we saw last week and as we commemorate every week when we share in the Lord's Supper. This is good news, for sure. It's the gospel, right? Jesus died for me in my place so that I could be saved from the consequences of my sin. That's how many of us would articulate the good news, it's how we think that Good Friday is good news, but what if I told you there's more to the story? So that is part of the gospel, but there might be a I was today years old moment if we shift from the gospel being good news for me personally, because my sins are forgiven, to the gospel being good news about Jesus and about his kingdom, that's good news for the heavens and the earth. Because as Jesus dies on the cross, there's something bigger going on. There's something cosmic going on where Jesus dies and the sky goes dark. It's a picture for people shaped by the Old Testament of decreation, of chaotic life before light was made, before God said, let there be light. It's a picture of their heavenly bodies that God put in the sky going dark, heavenly bodies that helped people understand the creatures in the heavenly realm in the Old Testament world. And it's a picture of judgment, like the judgment that fell on Egypt when the day went dark in the Exodus story. But now darkness is spreading over Jerusalem, not Egypt. 
And in this moment when Jesus cries out at about three in the afternoon, cries out in a loud voice, first in Aramaic, but Matthew tells us what he says. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something big going on here too. And we might want to make a, a theological point here about the Father and Son being separated at the cross, the the infinite nature of the Trinity being broken apart as the Son takes the judgment for sin, the sin that His Holy Father can't abide. We might make the case that Jesus is experiencing exile from God, the consequences for sin, curse, death. And the thorns in His crown are a picture of His taking the cursed world upon His head. But I want to suggest that part of what makes Good Friday great, not just good, Part of a I was today is old moment is that there's something more going on even in this statement. That while Jesus was experiencing God forsakenness, he was experiencing exile from his Father on our behalf, suffering and anguish, being surrounded by enemies, walking through the valley of the shadow of death and crying out to his Father in that pain that he knew he wasn't actually God forsaken. And instead, as he cries out these words, Jesus is still identifying himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the King coming to bring the kingdom. That as he says these words, he's actually activating an Old Testament image for the people around him and for us as we read Matthew's Gospel. Because as he says these words, he's quoting directly from Psalm 22, which shows us that he knows where things are going. And so I'm going to invite Natalie back up to read Psalm 22 for us now. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a portrait, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to the people. 
In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all your descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all your descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominions belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the riches of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn, he has done it. Thanks, Natalie. Now, in the heading of this psalm, we are told it's a psalm of David. It's a psalm written by God's anointed king. He writes as he's surrounded by enemies, feeling cut off and exiled from God's provision, but in that moment, crying out to God. It's also a psalm about God using his anointed one, carrying him through that suffering to lead people back to him to create a kingdom that restores the whole world, where people from all nations come to worship God. And David, like Jesus, he cries out in genuine anguish. He's certainly feeling like God is distant. He cries out, but he finds no rest. He doesn't find the blessing of God's presence or Sabbath life resting in Eden or in Jerusalem, the garden city with the temple that's going to be built in the next generation. This is where God is meeting with his people. David and Jesus are both reacting to bad stuff going on, to the appearance that God is absent, which is exactly the dilemma that faced Israel in their exile. And by crying out in lament and anguish, just like Jesus does, he shows us that we have permission, absolute permission to do that too in our suffering because of who God is and because his experience, just like it is for Jesus, is real. But what if David isn't just echoing, sorry, what if Jesus isn't just echoing David's despair as he cries out? Just that one line from the psalm. What if he is invoking the whole psalm and its message? for the people watching on as he's crucified and the people like us reading the story in Matthew's Gospel. There's actually a stack of parallels throughout the psalm and Matthew's recording of the events. I don't know if you noticed them, but the Messiah in the psalm is mocked because he cries out to God in his anguish. Mocked. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord step in and deliver him if he truly delights in him. Remember through Matthew's Gospel, we've heard God declare that Jesus is his son whom he loves, who he delights in. And these are the sorts of insults echoed by the crowd passing by Jesus at the crucifixion and Israel's priests, as they say, he trusts in God, let God rescue him if he's really the son of God in whom God delights. And the Messiah's hands and feet are pierced in the psalm. 
This is such a stunning picture, isn't it, of what happens to Jesus. It's like Isaiah written a long, long time, this psalm, about a thousand years before Jesus. And Matthew quite deliberately wants to see us, have us see the parallels as these events play out. In the psalm, they even cast lots for the Messiah's clothing. Jesus is the anointed king. That's what Messiah means. He's surrounded by enemies. He appears forsaken by God in this moment, just like the Messiah in the Psalms. And here's my I was today years old moment from this year. David describes himself surrounded by these enemies, bulls and lions, beastly powers, the strong bulls of Bashan. In this Psalm, the anointed king is not surrounded only by earthly enemies who want him dead, but this is a picture of him being beset by these cosmic forces of evil. Let me take a moment to unpack this. I think it's worth it because it gets us to some mountains. If you've been here in Matthew, you know that I've been fascinated by mountains and I hope you will be too, maybe after Sunday, we'll see. The mountains of Bashan, do you remember them from a few weeks ago? The mountains of Bashan are on the border of Israel, between Israel and the nations. If you are here a few weeks ago when Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi and then was transfigured on a mountain nearby, you might remember that I talked about Mount Hermon. It's this massive peak. It's the highest mountain in this Bashan range. Now, this was a mountain, Mount Hermon, that was a holy place for all the nations around Israel. It was an anti-Zion. Zion's the mountain that Jerusalem was built on, that the temple was built on. Mount Hermon in Bashan is where in a Babylonian story, this epic of Gilgamesh, the hero goes to a cosmic mountain garden to meet the gods. Uh, if you're from the ancient Near East, it was like a Babylonian Eden. If you are from Israel, Mount Hermon is where the rebellious angels landed and launched their rebellion in Genesis 6. It's this sign of cosmic rebellion against God, Bashan. It's where in the Old Testament, the last of the giants after the Nephilim in Genesis, uh, King Og with his giant bed, he comes from Bashan to make war on God's people as a picture of heavenly and earthly beings coming together to oppose God's people. And so the bulls of Bashan, it's not like this stampede of horned cows running in to attack the Messiah. They are a picture of this beastly spiritual power coming down from this mountain range, coming down from the heavens to oppose God's king and God's kingdom. The animating forces that were understood to be working behind the human opponents of the Messiah, of God's king, bringing about his kingdom and his presence in the world. Spiritual power flowing down from this other mountain into the world, represented by the people who opposed the Messiah. And if you remember back where Jesus says he'll build his church on this rock, as he stands with Mount Hermon in the background in Caesarea Philippi, and we talked about the idea that Jesus is talking about freeing people from the enemies of God as he gathers Jews and Gentiles together in one kingdom, and as he goes up in the transfiguration onto this Gentile holy mountain, a holy mountain for the pagans, and the heavens are opened up and he's revealed and declared as God's son whom he loves. He's going up on a pagan holy place and reclaiming it for God and saying he's coming to build a church, a people, a kingdom that is going to include both Israel 
and the nations. And in this psalm, God's anointed king, the one he delights in, is what God says at the transfiguration about Jesus. He is surrounded by pagan mockers, a picture of the bulls of Bashan. And in the gospel at the cross, God's anointed is surrounded not just by Gentile soldiers, the pagan soldiers of Rome, who worshipped all these other gods, but by the Jewish people. They have become the bulls of Bashan, opposing the anointed. They're they're priests in not recognising God because they don't recognise his son, are showing that they recognise some other God. They've become in league with the powers and principalities of the world who are opposed to God's kingdom breaking in because they are opposed to and surrounding and oppressing and crucifying God's king. And while Jesus is a picture of being God forsaken in this psalm, going through the valley, the suffering, the taking death on his shoulders, God is using this forsaken one to reveal himself and to recreate his kingdom in the world. His Messiah becomes the one who declares God's name to his people, not just to Israel, not just to descendants of Jacob, but to the whole world. He's the one who brings people from all the ends of the earth back to the Lord in repentance, which is what he calls for at the start of the gospel, a remembering and turning to the Lord so that families of the nations bow down before him because he's the rightful ruler of the heavens and the earth. And now most of us who are here today, and we're some people with Jewish heritage, but most of us are here today recognising God's Messiah precisely because this happens. Because Jesus is the one who goes through being forsaken by God in order to declare the name of the Lord, in order to declare that God is the one who raises him up and glorifies him and makes him the king of the heavens and the earth. And as he says these words of this psalm on the cross, he's bringing all of this imagery to the fore. Because in the cross, and the bits Matthew focuses on, we see Psalm 22 being fulfilled. Israel's leaders have become Bashan, joining the spiritual powers opposed to Jesus, joining Rome, joining Satan. So the kingdom is taken from them and given to others. Not just those in Israel who can't recognize, sorry, taken from those who can't recognize him as the Son of God and given to those in Israel who do, who see him as the Messiah, but also being given to the nations. And at the cross, Jesus wins a victory over the powers and principalities those opposed to God's kingdom, the bulls of Bashan and all those forces who'd hold humans in captivity, exiled from God, so that we can be restored into God's kingdom and his presence. And this doesn't just happen with the resurrection, but this is the great news of Great Friday, that Jesus in his death wins this victory over the bulls, the hungry lions, the beasts, just as he appears forsaken. At the moment of his death, the church is being built. The gates of Hades won't hold the dead any longer. And we see Matthew bringing up this imagery in what he reports as Jesus breathes his last, as he gives up his spirit. See, Jesus was revealed in glory in Bashan's mountains, on Mount Hermon, when he was transfigured. While Zion becomes this place where God's son is executed, so God isn't going to dwell 
there on Israel's holy mountain any longer. He will not dwell in their temple again. Judgment falls on the temple. Its curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. This is an act of God from the heavens to the earth. And this curtain, it was the barrier between heaven and earth, between God and humans. It's torn apart by Jesus. God with us dies to create his church, a gathered people sealed by his blood and his spirit so that God no longer dwells on that mountain but in his people, his new kingdom. And then the earth shakes in Matthew and the gates of Hades don't hold. This is the weirdest passage in the Bible, I think. I have never heard anyone try to preach on it. I have no idea what happens to these people after this. But I think what Matthew wants to show us is that the gates of Hades are not holding. That Jesus' kingdom is breaking in and it is breaking through the grave. It's still weird. The tombs give way. The grave, the tomb, the gates of Hades have been breached. They can no longer contain people in the realm of the dead. And this happens, it coincides with the death of Jesus, even if they then hang around in the tombs until Sunday and then go out into the holy city. What do you do for that? Anyway. (laughs) I don't know. But then in Matthew, he moves on. The Gentiles, even a Roman centurion recognises the crucified Jesus as the Son of God. Exactly what Israel, the crowd and its leaders could not do as they mocked Jesus because he was being crucified. This Gentile, this pagan warrior, this servant of Rome, the kingdom opposed to God's king in this moment, whose authority is being used to put him to death. This centurion recognises the crucified Jesus as the Son of God because he sees how he dies and sees what happens when he dies. This is almost as big an upheaval in the world order as the ground shaking and the graves breaking open that this Gentile, king, this Gentile authority figure might recognise that Jesus is king. The idea that a crucified man could be glorious requires a total upheaval of the Roman view of the world. Crucifixion was meant to humiliate and make sure no one could claim to be a king but Caesar. And here this man is taking one of Caesar's titles and saying, I see it. This is an earth-shattering, barrier-tearing moment. Psalm 22 is being fulfilled, not just in the casting of lots for the king's clothes or in his suffering, in his being forsaken by God, but as Jesus the human ruler of the heavens and the earth becomes God's ruler of the nations, defeating the spiritual powers that keep people exiled from God so that he might bring people from all nations into his church, that he might bring people out of the grave and into life, into new life as God's representatives in the world. And we'll see more of this on Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep opening our eyes and our hearts to the size of the work of Jesus on the cross. That you would just blow our minds as we meditate on your word. As we see the words of the prophets like Isaiah and the Psalms fulfilled in this moment in history. As we see Jesus there on the cross, a cursed tree taking on the cursed world upon his shoulders so that he might lead us into new life with you. 
as we see him there paying the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven, but also as we see him there winning this victory over the powers and principalities. Just when Satan thinks he's winning through his human agents destroying the Son of God, we see the Son of God being raised up as king. The king not just of Israel, but of the heavens and the earth. The Son of God and the Son of Man. And we pray that together we might see him as he is and worship him and give our lives to you so that he might be glorified in them as we love and serve one another the way he loves and serves us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.